If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, we're continuing our Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask series, where we combine popular search queries with questions you've sent to us via our social media platforms. The subject for this episode is Ancient Greece, and our expert is Professor Paul Cartledge, a classicist based at the University of Cambridge. Putting the questions to him was our digital editor, Emma Mason. Because this is such a sizeable subject, we've decided to split the interview up over two episodes, and the next one is due to be released a week from now. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Paul Cartledge, Emeritus Professor of Greek Culture at the University of Cambridge, who is an expert in all areas of ancient Greek history. Paul has written extensively on the subject, and his latest book, Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, was published by Picador as an e-book in May 2020, and will be published in hardcovers in November. So Paul, perhaps we could begin with a brief timeline. When exactly was ancient Greece? What time period do we define as ancient Greece? And what events bookend that period. Thanks very much for having me on your podcast. I sometimes say it's a bit wicked. There's no such thing as ancient Greece in the sense there's nothing like modern Greece. In other words, a state, a nation state. Uh, Ancient Hellas is what the Greeks would have called it. And it was wherever Greeks, Hellenes lived permanently, where they lived, spoke Greek, 
um, worshipped gods in the Greek way and so on. Well, now the Greek language is attested as early as about 1400 BC in a funny script. We call it Linear B, and it was a syllabic script. Every sign stands for a syllable, not for an individual letter. And that script was devised for a quite different civilization of Greece from the one that you and I are going to be talking about. In other words, you could say ancient Greece goes back to 1400 BC, but most of us would say round about 1000 BC down to about 30 BC is what we think of as ancient Greek history as opposed to prehistoric, pre-Hellenic, it's sometimes called Greek, or post-Hellenic, which would be Roman history, because, of course, the Romans conquered the Greeks. Greece becomes part of the Roman Empire, that is, old Greece, and all the Greek world becomes part of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire goes on forever and ever, and therefore, you know, there's no sort of distinction at the lower end. But broadly speaking, let me say it's from round about 1000 BC to the end of the Hellenistic period with the death of Cleopatra, who was a Greek, uh, though she was an Egyptian Greek, and she committed suicide in 30 BC. And then the Roman Empire, we say, we, the Roman period of Greek history takes over from then. Excellent. Um, so what civilization came before ancient Greece? There were obviously several, um, depends how you define civilization, but most people think it's something to do with cities, urban um, development, literacy, hierarchy, social and so on. And therefore, we could say there was civilization in the Middle East, and especially in what's today Iraq, as early as the fourth millennium BC. And sometimes people think the Sumerians were the very first people, as it were, historical in some sense, who had something like a civilization. But of course, the most famous pre-Greek, though it's contemporary with Greek, uh, civilization is the Egyptian. So the many, many dynasties and the so-called New Kingdom of Egypt overlaps pretty precisely with that period where the Greeks invented this form of writing called, we call it, linear B. So the late Bronze Age in um, technological terms, between about 1500 and about um, 1100 BC. Okay, and Mark Ross on Twitter asks, are the Macedonian period and the Byzantine Empire not included in the time period? Right, I take it by Macedonian what's meant is when Macedonian Greeks, first Philip II, then his son Alexander the Great, conquered Old Greece, Aegean Greece, in the 330s BC, and then Alexander took Greek civilization, he conquered the Middle East by conquering the Persian Empire. So the Macedonian period, we would say, begins in the late 4th century and it culminates in what I've already mentioned, the suicide of Cleopatra VII, who was the last Ptolemaic, it's called, because the ultimate founder of her dynasty was called Ptolemy, and he was a Macedonian. He was um, one of Alexander the Great's followers, bodyguards, and he became the first king, as he called himself, of Egypt, a Greek king. So the Macedonian 
Macedonian period is part of what I call ancient Greek history. On the other hand, the Byzantine Empire, though Byzantion, Byzantion in Greek, is a Greek foundation, it's today's Istanbul, it goes back to the 7th century BC, but when we talk about Byzantine history as a period, we date it from the foundation of the new city of Constantinople. It's the same place as Istanbul and as Byzantion, but it's named after Constantine the Great. Constantine the first and the official founding date of the city of Constantinople is 330 so the earliest Byzantine period 330 AD Anno Domini or CE common era and it lasts for over a thousand years it goes down to 1453 which is when Mehmet II who was a was a sultan of the Ottomans he conquered Byzantion, Constantinople, and renamed it uh, Istanbul, which is probably based on a Greek uh, phrase to the city, the polis of um, Byzantium. But nevertheless, that is the official um, conventional end of Byzantine history. So that whole period is post-antique post-classical, definitely nothing to do with my ancient Greece. One reason being Constantinople was, of course, a Christian city. Constantine was a Christian emperor, and so we're, our period, you and I, we're dealing with pre-Christian, so-called pagan Hellenism. Right, and, and you mentioned Hellenistic period there. So there were three periods of ancient Greece. Yes, within right? my our ancient Greece, we have three broad periods. Archaic, the upper um, level of that floats, and I put it around about eight hundred BC. But you could go back early. Another way of looking at it is early Iron Age or proto-historic. Um, old books used to date the beginning of archaic, and so the beginning of historical Greek history to 776. And the reason for that is we're going to come back to it. That is the traditional date for the founding of the Olympic Games. Archaic goes for circa about three centuries, I would say, from about 800 to 500. And there is a kind of turning point, 500 to 480, those two decades, great invasion from Persia, which a tiny handful of Greek cities resist. Had they been conquered in 480, 479, then ancient Greek history would have become part of Persian history. But as it is, they retained their independence and the classical period we date from that moment, early 5th century BC, BCE, down to the death of Alexander the Great, and he died in Babylon in June 323 BC. So conventionally, classical is circa 500, 480 to 323. And then we've already discussed Hellenistic. Why is it called Hellenistic? Well, it's Greek, it's Hellenic, but it's Hellenistic. So it's Greek-ish because Alexander conquered the old Persian Empire. And inevitably, Greek civilization in the East the new Greek dominance
dominated Middle East, as far east as Pakistan, as far east as um, Afghanistan, incorporated certain amount of Oriental elements. So it's Greek-ish. It's dominantly Greek, but it has Oriental elements. That's the Hellenistic period. And as I've said already, we end that conventionally with the last Hellenistic monarch who is Cleopatra VII of Egypt, dying in 30 BC BCE. Excellent. Now, one area of particular popularity online, lots and lots of search queries, is about, uh, inevitably, ancient Greece, uh, ancient Greek democracy. So maybe you could explain to us um, what did democracy mean in ancient Greece? When did it develop? How did it work? It's, of course, a very complex, a huge question. But I must say, first of all, there were about a thousand separate Greek cities. So you can't say that there was one thing ancient Greek democracy. Those cities which had democracy had their own democracy. So in other words, each one would be slightly different from all the others. And the majority of Greek cities never had any form of democracy. It's important to remember that of those 1,000, perhaps a quarter perhaps 250, had a form of democracy at some time, not necessarily for all the period. Well, the earliest form, the earliest um, type of democracy is the Athenian, and it was created round about 500 BC, and its main point is not to be what the Athenians had before, which was tyranny. And tyranny, and I'm going to come on to this later, is not a constitutional form of government, but it is a way in which a sole ruler rules by might based on force. He might observe the pre-existing laws, he might not, but he rules by force. Well, the Athenians decided, no, we want constitutional government, we want a republic, and this is where democracy comes in. We want the demos, the people of the Athenians, all the male citizens, and we'll be discussing later who they were, should rule themselves. They should therefore have, and this is the other bit of democracy, kratos, demos, people, kratos, power, strength, might. So from about 500 BC, Athens had an early form, it developed later, of democratia, though actually, interestingly, it wasn't yet called that. It's quite an interesting fact. So beyond that, in the next 100, 150 years, perhaps as many as a quarter of um, all Greek cities, about 250, maybe, we can't be certain, had some form of democracy. But Athens was the leader. Athens' form of democracy was more complete, more uh, advanced, more developed than any other Greek city. So how did it work in Athens, to take that example? How, um, I'm right in thinking, there were the three sort of branches... Yes, you're, you're right in thinking that there are those three branches. There's an executive, that is, the people who currently hold executive official positions, for example, generals. Secondly, a permanent council chosen not by election, but by lot from among all the citizens of Athens. And to be a citizen of Athens, you had to be born Athenian. So to begin with, you had to have an Athenian father. It didn't matter that your mother was Athenian to begin with. 
you had to be free, your parents had to be legitimate and married to each other, so you were legitimate, and you had then to be entered on the electoral roll, same as us, you have to be registered, and from the age of 18 you get a chance to vote, so you become a full adult citizen aged 18, but men only. Unlike our universal adult suffrage system, women and men, in the ancient world, no women ever were considered to be the equals of men in political terms, even in a democracy. And I put it that way because democracy is based on two fundamental principles, equality, that is equality among all those empowered, and secondly, freedom. You've got to be free as a free person, not a slave, and you've got to be free in your mind and in your spirit to be able to participate in the democratic process. So it's a a very radical step, the most radical ever taken anywhere in the world up to that date, but it has its limits. Adult men only. And how long did Athenian democracy survive? So there were, as I say, more than one version and the democracy became, if you like, more democratic as time went on, because more Athenians were actually physically able and encouraged and empowered to take part on a daily basis by the introduction of pay. So imagine you're working in the fields, basically. Well, certain times of year, it's very difficult to take any time off, thinking of harvest. You need, therefore, to be paid a compensation so that if you're not actually working on the days you're doing political duty, you're still getting an income. So if you're on the council, which is the second level, the basic level is being a citizen and therefore entitled to attend the assembly. Um, The third level I've already mentioned is being uh, chosen to hold an office, a general or some other um, official function, maybe um, watching over the currency, the um, the absolute correctness, the purity, that's the word I'm looking for, of the the city's silver coinage, that they're not dealing with fakes. So you have um, officials to look after the mint, that sort of thing. Well, the um, middle level, the council, they sat almost every day. They were chosen by lot at random from all Athenian citizens. Well, that's going to be difficult if you, as I say, don't have backup um, help or if you're not paid a compensation. So you are paid a little um, sum every day that you sit, and you would sit probably 300 days out of 365. You've you've touched on there a way in which it differed from sort of present day democracy as as we would know it. Um, what other ways did it did it differ? The most fundamental, and this is an absolute category distinction, we typically, those of us who live in a democracy or a genuine democracy, have a form of democracy that's known generically as representative. In other words, you and I, on a daily basis, do not rule We choose people to represent us in Parliament. So representative democracy is sometimes also called parliamentary democracy. 
But parliamentary democracies differ. We have a funny system in uh, Westminster in the UK where you have an unelected House of Lords as opposed to an elected House of Commons. We also have a funny thing called a constitutional monarchy. So technically we have a kind of mixed system. In America they have a president, all-powerful chief of the armed services, can hire and fire judges, nominate and all sorts of things that no individual, not even a prime minister, can do in the UK system. So the important point is that though representative democracies differ, they all are the same in that they choose people, representatives, who govern, who rule for them. The ancients didn't have that notion. They thought if you're going to rule, if you have power, kratos in Greek, if you choose officials, if you elect generals, if you sit on the council, if you attend an assembly meeting and raise your right hand and vote, that's it. You are doing democracy. You are the ruler as well as the rule. So in other words, the Republican notion, no monarch, no um, single ruler, no tyrant, but everybody in turn fulfilling different roles at different times. And that includes, by the way, being judges. We think that judiciary is something quite separate from legislation or holding executive office. They didn't. They didn't have a notion of separation of powers. So they were a direct democracy, absolutely to the max. And how did it influence the way in which democracy has developed since? Oddly enough, very little directly. In other words, the word democracy, coined by the ancient Greeks, is the universal term for whatever different countries decide their democracy should be. But the direct line of descent, um, it stops in ancient Greece. There is no ancient Greek-style direct democracy after, well, I think probably the third or second century BC at the very latest. I myself think probably not much after um, 300 BC. So when in the early modern period, the 16th, 17th, 18th century, the word democracy starts creeping back, especially in England in the 17th century, in France and uh, in America in the 18th century, then democracy acquires a salience and people start looking back to the ancient Greeks. Well, what did they do? How did they do it? But there was a universal agreement in the 19th century when democracy starts expanding quite considerably that the system we must have, partly because of size, must be indirect. It must be representative, parliamentary, not direct on the ancients' model. And there was, in fact, um, quite a lot of discussion about the danger of direct democracy of the ancient time, namely the danger of it shifting over into, well, the tyranny of the mob, mob rule. So emotion instead of reason governing public decisions and then turning on minorities, something actually the ancients weren't particularly fussed about because there weren't the sort of minorities that we have developed in our very much more plural systems. So um, that wasn't a concern. By our standards, the ancients were very 
very intolerant. Um, they didn't have um, any concern for either racial or ethnic or gender minorities. Um, the majority rule, and they should rule, and they're all pretty much the same because they're all adult male Greeks. And you mentioned their leaders. Um, how exactly were leaders chosen? Right. Obviously, different cities will have different systems, but there was an agreement that the democratic way, to us this is quite, in a way strange, in a way not strange, but the, the democratic way is to use the random lottery. So it's as it were pulling a name out of a hat. Of course, you've got to put your name in the hat. So it depends on volunteering. And in some respects, for example, the council, the volunteering was not that voluntary because everybody, every um, local unit, and um, we would call it a parish or a ward, had a fixed quota that it must produce every year for its contribution to the council. So if the um, little um, parish was very small, pretty much everybody actually would serve at least once in their life as an allotted, chosen by lot, councillor. But there were two types of offices that all the Greeks agreed should be chosen differently, in other words, by election. You and I probably think that election is a very democratic sort of thing. Oddly enough, the ancient Greeks thought that uh, election tended to favour the rich, the famous, the well-born, in other words, the elite. And if you have an egalitarian spirit, as the ancients did, you don't actually want to privilege elites any more than they already are. However, this is where prudence, rationality kicks in. If you're going to have a general leading thousands of your fellow citizens in a very key battle, and the Greeks were often fighting each other as well as foreigners, both on land and at sea, then you need to have people who are above averagely intelligent, smart, well-connected, experienced. And so you keep election for the top military offices and you keep election for the top financial offices on the basis that if some somebody's very rich, they're going to be used to handling lots of money, they'll know how to account for it, and they're not going to be so tempted to put their hand in the till as if you were poor. Whereas most Athenians were poor, and so most people holding offices by lot were poorer. They, they weren't rich people on average. Unsurprisingly, um, Alexander the Great is obviously one of the most popular uh, leaders. There's lots, so much, um, so many search queries on online around around him. So, uh, if I could just put a few of those to you. So, um, one of the key ones is is what exactly was he famous for? <laughs> yeah, why is he? Another way of putting that is, was he as great as he's <laughs> made yes. out to be? He actually acquired that nickname after his death. In his lifetime, he wasn't called the great, but he did set a trend. Lots of other people, Pompey, the Roman general. Well, what it was really was that he was quite unparalleled as a conqueror. In other words, as the commander of forces, both in pitched battle and in sieges and in um, traversing vast terrains of an alien kind when they didn't have GPS, you know. And so uh, 
he frankly was in a league pretty much with Genghis Khan and Napoleon. Of course, Napoleon suffered the terrible defeat at Waterloo. Um, the winner of Waterloo, Duke of Wellington. There aren't many. Nelson. There's a sort of elite league, a super league of commanders. And one of the peculiarities of Alexander was that formally, technically, he never was defeated in a measurable, you know, in a battle that made a difference. There were skirmishes when um, leaders under him, junior officers, got beaten up, but he personally never suffered a single failure as a general. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary feat. Wow, that that really is. And how long... Was he in powerful? So he came to the throne aged only 20, throne of Maston, and his dad had been assassinated. Um, the kingdom of Maston was quite unstable. So Philip, Philip II, his dad, had got all of mainland Greece under his control, mainly by military means, pitched battle, but also by diplomatic means. Alexander learned very fast. He was already commanding armies at the age of 16. At the age of 18, he was um, his father's, as it were, right-hand man at a major battle. But even he wouldn't have been expecting to become king aged only 20. So having first of all quelled such opposition as there was in Greece, and there was quite a lot, they didn't like being subjects of a particular king, in this case of Maston. At any rate, Philip had already formulated the idea of conquering some part of the Persian Empire. To the east of the Greeks was this huge empire, the largest oriental empire of its date. It stretched from Afghanistan, Pakistan in the east. Its heartland was Iran, and it stretched as far west as the Aegean Sea. So all of what's now Turkey, and then over into Europe in what's roughly Bulgaria and northern Greece today. All that was the Persian Empire. That was the one that tried to incorporate mainland Greece, that attacked mainland Greece beginning of the 5th century, failed. Well, 150 years later, Philip, then Alexander, reversed the position. They turned the tables. They attacked the Persian Empire, ostensibly to liberate Greeks who were subjects of Persia. And these are Greeks who live along the western shore of Turkey, from Istanbul or Byzantion in the north, all the way down to very near to Cyprus um, in the south. And it was massively successful. Obviously, there were setbacks, but four major pitched battles. And within, well, four years, Alexander himself took over command in 334. By 330, he had effectively defeated the Persian Empire. There were still um, pockets of resistance. Resistance, and in fact, there had been resistance to the previous Persian kings. The Persian kings hadn't managed to control absolutely every bit of their empire. Alexander had a bigger project, though, in his mind. I think this is peculiar to him. His dad probably would have been different. Not enough just to conquer the existing empire, but he wanted to push on to what he thought was the outer limits of the entire inhabited world. 
So the Greeks believed that the inhabited world was like a huge island surrounded by huge amount of water, which they called the ocean. Alexander thought if you press on east, you get to the existing borders of the Persian Empire, what we call Afghanistan, Pakistan, keep going, not long, and you'll hit the ocean. Wrong. So in other words, he knew nothing about China, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Well, eventually his men got fed up. They were footsore, they were tired, they were homesick. They couldn't see what the point was of carrying on ever further east when, what what do you get? Well, you just get more territory and power and glory, mainly for Alexander. And so they mutinied, and the big mutiny, Alexander failed to put it down. So instead of carrying on east beyond Afghanistan, he had to go down south into what we call Pakistan, Kashmir, that bit of northwest India. And then he headed back along the Persian Gulf initially to um, Iran, and then eventually he ended up back in Iraq, which is what we call Iraq, Babylon, in 323, where he fell ill. And there's a a lot of dispute. Was he poisoned uh, or did he die of natural causes, for example, some kind of disease not helped by the fact that he'd been very seriously wounded more than once? Who knows? But at any rate, in June, it was June the 10th or the 11th, 323 BC, he died at Babylon. So he'd ruled since 336, 13 years, and he'd been in Asia since 334, so that's about 11 years, this meteoric career, and he died aged almost 33, but actually 32. And you mentioned India there. Um, Johnny Hatch on Facebook asks, what do you believe would have unfolded for future history had Alexander the Great conquered India? Well, of course, he thought he had conquered India because what he called India was what you and I call Northwest India, Pakistan, Kashmir, India. But um, to be serious, he did send ambassadors further on into what is Northern India, uh, North East. Eastern India, and his um, one of his um, associates, a man called Megasthenes, did actually meet with what we would call Hindu sages, and one of them actually was attracted to join Alexander as part of his circle. It's very interesting that there is direct connection beyond the old Persian Empire, but it was the Romans who, through trade, not through conquest, of course the Romans never conquered India either, But the Romans had much, much more direct trade contact with India south of um, the northwest, indeed right down to the very far south, and lots and lots of Roman pottery has turned up. And what they were after, and indeed what the Greeks were after, was um, spices, really, incense, that sort of thing. They didn't need to import grain because they imported that from much further, much nearer, you know, Cyprus, Egypt, uh, as well as the Black see what's now South Russia. But they were fascinated. I mean, they knew about the Indians. They knew about their philosophy, which you and I would call Hinduism and so on. Um, But uh, Alexander didn't actually get anywhere near. In fact, nobody, no ancient people got anywhere near conquering all of southern India. And turning back for a moment to his death, um, a very popular search question is, 
What were Alexander the Great's last words? Yeah, well, the evidence, of course, for such a climactic event was very confused. And that's why I say it's not at all sure how or what from he actually died. And if it was poison, then, of course, there were um, interests at court. They, his immediate uh, entourage, rather like Indira Gandhi, remember, was killed by her Sikh bodyguard. Well, in the same way, Alexander may have been killed by one of his bodyguards. But let's suppose he died of natural causes. Let's suppose he did have breath at the last moment. And there is a story that he had a ring... And on the ring was inscribed two words, and in Greek they're to kratisto. And it's the same word, by the way, kratos, power, demokratia, kratos, power. Kratistos means the most powerful person. So he hands his signet ring, which is, of course, the ring you use to stamp any document as official. So the next king, as it were, must have an official seal. And on it was inscribed to the strongest, to the most powerful, which was interpreted in light of history because for the next 50-odd years, a handful of warlords, starting with his original bodyguards, fought it out. I mean, they didn't just fight metaphorically, they actually fought major pitched battles for each of their own turf. So Alexander's huge empire is carved up eventually into three major kingdoms. And um, it starts all with Alexander not leaving a living male heir. He married um, three times, or he had three wives, because actually the second two he married at the same time. He was polygamous, which was not a very Greek thing. It was okay for a Persian king, and some people think Alexander actually became a kind of Persian king, more than a Greek king, by the end of his life. At any rate, one of his wives, the famous one, Roxani, who was from Bactria, which is today's Afghanistan, she was pregnant and she did in fact give birth to a son after Alexander's death, but that son was murdered by one of the several rivals for Alexander's uh, kingdom. And that just shows you how murderous, how vicious the struggle was uh, after Alexander's death. What do we know about his other wives? Well, the other two were both um, daughters of Persian kings, the two previous kings, the one he conquered the actual defeated Darius III and his predecessor. And um, the idea was that not just he should have a marriage to, in his case, two Persian royal brides, but that all his companions, and there were about a hundred of them with the official title companion, should marry Asiatic and in particular Iranian women. And the point, I think, I mean, one doesn't have Alexander's diet if he wrote any. We don't have his privileged thoughts on exactly why he did anything that he did. But at any rate, I think the thought was that out of those unions, sexual, would come mixed-race, Greek-Iranian 
uh, ideally boys, who would then take over as the new ruling elite of Alexander's um, kingdom. So it's quite an enlightened notion. These marriages were uh, consecrated the year before Alexander died in 324 BC. About a hundred of his companions were formally married according to the Iranian, not Greek, rites, even though they probably all had their own wives already. They had to take another one as Alexander was taking another two. And um, that's that's, um, what what are called the Sousa weddings. And uh, it's quite an extraordinary uh, phenomenon. I mean, much about Alexander is quite extraordinary. It's actually very difficult to get a handle on. So in answer to your earlier question, in what sense, if any, was he the great? Well, he was one of the greatest generals ever, the great. But he's also great in making the difference, making a difference to the lives of millions of people at almost at a stroke in this decade um, with very long-lasting consequences. He founded the city of Alexandria. Alexandria became the most um, important intellectual capital of the entire ancient world before Rome. So in that sense, Alexander's legacy was utterly decisive, fantastic, terribly important. There's another view that anybody called the great is a great, awful, terrible person. And Alexander certainly killed huge numbers of people in pursuit of his various goals or ideals. So how bloody would you say he was? Well, that's a question. I mean, the negative view uh, is, I'll give you the most negative. He drank too much so that he wasn't always fully in command of his uh, senses. And he sometimes either ordered or himself inflicted murderous um, effects. For example, when he was very, very drunk, he killed a man who was one of his companions from Macedonia, one of his original, you know, court circle boon buddies who had actually saved his life in a battle. He killed him because that man had said something rather critical, rather derogatory to him when they'd all been boozing. They were all at least half cut. So the very, very negative view is that Alexander, especially as time went on, as Uh, His troops periodically mutinied. As he got more exhausted, he suffered more wounds. His mind was... and so on. became more and more brutal. And there's one massacre, there's no question it was a massacre, of a town in what's now um, Pakistan. It's called Multan. And Alexander was particularly brave at this. He actually led the attack on the walls of this uh, town, nearly getting himself killed. So you could say leading from the front, by example, has its risks that if you die, well, you really are going to cause a huge problem to your troops and everybody that follows you. At any rate, he, he didn't die. He was very seriously wounded. But as a punishment of those people who'd done that to him, he seems to have ordered just, you know, indiscriminate slaughter rather than just, okay, we've beaten you, you've surrendered, right, that's it. There's lots of interest online about the mystery surrounding his tomb. So um, 
Where is he thought to have been buried and and has his tomb actually been located? Well, I'll answer the first. Um, It hasn't. There are four main candidates and there is really, in terms of our evidence, only one city, one site in which he conceivably was buried. And as far as we know, his remains have never since been translated, transported from there. And that's Alexandria. He died in Babylon. His corpse was mummified so that it could be transported back ultimately to the capital of Macedonia, a place called Pella in northern Greece. But As it was passing Damascus in Syria, one of those successors of his, in fact, King Ptolemy, the one who calls himself Ptolemy I when he founds a dynasty, a monarchy, he grabbed the (laughs) coffin and the the procession was interrupted by um, Ptolemy, who hijacked the corpse. And he took it to what was then his capital, which was Memphis, because Memphis is the old capital of Egypt. When the Greeks under Alexander conquered Egypt from the Persians, they first of all took over the old Egyptian capital, Memphis. But Alexander had designated Alexandria to be the new capital of Greek Egypt. So when Alexandria was built, his corpse was transferred from Memphis to Alexandria and given a fantastic burial, you know, great sort of ceremony put into a fancy surround. A glass was put over the tomb so you could actually look at the mummified corpse. So we're talking about something like Lenin in the Kremlin. And um, that's the last we know for sure of where it was. There's a famous alleged instance when the first Roman emperor, that's Augustus, after the death of Cleopatra, Augustus becomes Roman emperor, including therefore of Egypt, and he makes a visit, a pilgrimage almost, to the tomb, the corpse of Alexander. But, now this could be just a joke, he is said to have been so keen to get down to look at the corpse that he knocked its nose off. Well, you've probably seen images of Egyptian mummies and quite often they don't have a a nose because it's very easy to knock that off when it's very brittle. At any rate, Alexander um, is, I mean, I'm absolutely sure that the corpse of Alexander was buried somewhere in Alexandria. The problem partly is that what was the central, where the palace was, is now underwater. And you may have seen pictures of um, divers fishing up Greek and Egyptian, uh, often statues because they last well in the water, from the seabed and bringing them up to Alexandria. So probably where he was buried is no longer accessible on the land. On the other hand, um, there are devotees who think that uh, they can identify and there are I think four main candidates. One of them is a mosque where it's a sort of suitable place that it might have been. Of course it would have been well down uh, as the uh, level of habitation has risen the actual level at which Alexander's corpse originally was uh, placed that was way down under our current land level. However there is one um, I hesitate to mention him by name, but 
When the Arabs took over Alexandria, they had no obvious interest in preserving anything pagan, anything pre-Islamic and so on. So the tomb of Alexandria, who gives a damn? Well, Alexandria also, it so happened, was the last resting place of one of the four gospel writers. So uh, Mark... Now, what is Mark? Where is Mark the patron saint of famously today? Venice. So um, a scholar, sort of scholar, has suggested that when the Venetians, looking for the relics of St Mark, went to Alexandria and dug up what they took to be St Mark's relics, which they then reburied under St Mark's Cathedral in Venice, what they actually dug up were the remains, or what they also actually dug up were the remains of Alexander the Great. So there is this crazy notion that he's um, uh, underneath uh, St Mark's Cathedral in Venice. (laughs) The other outlier, and this is a Greek scholar this time, I mean a modern Greek one, she wants him to have been buried at a site where he certainly visited. It certainly meant a great deal to him in his campaign because it actually had no military significance whatsoever. About 250 kilometres to the west West, on the borders with Libya, is a famous oasis called Siwa, S-I-W-A-H. And there is a Greek scholar who believes that his remains, having been in Alexandria, were then transported, translated to, as it were, where she thinks he really wanted to be buried, um, which is in uh, Siwa. Siwa is a shrine devoted to um, Egyptian Amun, whom the Greeks called Amun. And so, you know, it's a, in a way a plausible sort of novel, but a novelistic view, but it, it's not history. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This is where the, if you like, the dark underside of the Athenians' achievement lies. In order for them to be as wealthy, as successful, to build all those ships, wow, they needed slave labour. And looking at life in ancient Greece, there's obviously lots of interest uh, about that online. So maybe you could uh, introduce us briefly by explaining sort of how social status worked, class, that kind of thing. So we start, of course, with Hellene, or Greek as we say, and non-Hellene, or barbarian as we say. So anybody who's not a Greek, who doesn't speak Greek, doesn't act like a Greek, doesn't have Greek ancestry, is a barbarian. So that's your first. We're talking only now about Greeks. Within the Greek community, communities, uh, the most important, the most fundamental distinction was whether or not you were free or unfree. And typically, unfree people were not Greek, they were barbarian, and they were often slave. Typically, on the other hand, there were unfree Greek slaves. I'll come back to some of them later. Third main disjunction, male against female. This is a, let's put it um, in Greek terms, patriarchal 
world. Patriarchal means rule by fathers. So this is where male domination um, prevails. To be a citizen in the full active political sense, you have to be male. Women were at best second-class citizens. And that's the next distinction, the fourth, whether you were a citizen or not a citizen. And you might actually live in a city, you're a Greek, let's say, from Corinth, but you decide you want to go and live in Athens because the business opportunities are better for you. So you then become a resident alien. You don't become a citizen. This is a very big difference between the Greek world and the Greek idea of what it is to be a citizen and the Roman one. In Rome, it's possible even for a freed slave to become a citizen, a Roman citizen. If you are freed in Greece, you're typically not Greek by ethnicity, and you now become a resident alien. You're free, but you're never a citizen. So that's a big status distinction. And then finally, and this is something, of course, Jesus famously in the Bible says, the poor we have always with us. Well, the rich poor divide was the absolute fundamental one. And in a way, it's strange because it's crude. Uh, Why not moderately wealthy or moderately poor? The Greeks didn't make that subtle distinction. You were either rich, in which case you were so rich, you didn't need to work for your living because you got other people to work for you, or you were poor. You had to work for your living, and that would include people who are really quite well off, owners of businesses, owners of slaves, but they're not very rich. They have to work as craftsmen, let's say, or as traders. So they count as poor. And it maps onto, very importantly, um, the political distinction between democracy and oligarchy. So for us, oligarchs tend to be Russian. We think of them as super rich. They've got their money in um, some sort of natural gas or oil or whatever, and they're oligarchs. But in ancient Greece, an oligarch was indeed a rich person. To be an oligarch, by definition, you're rich. It's the rule of the rich. And as there aren't many of them, it's the rule of the few. So oligarchy means rule of the few rich. Democracy is, as I've already said, the rule of the people, but most of the ordinary people are poor. So it was sometimes thought of as the rule of the poor. And if you're not one of the poor, if you're one of the elite rich, that might actually be quite frightening. Because what if the majority decide to take against you? For example, by imposing a tax, which actually they did. I'm not making this up. So in other words, there's a kind of class war potentially and sometimes actively going on in every Greek city between the rich and the poor, one lot wanting oligarchy, one lot wanting a form of democracy. So was there a tax system in place? There was indeed, both um, personal and um, uh, collective. So... Typically speaking, if you're very rich in a democracy, it's going to be expected that you cough up when there is either, let's say, a military emergency and you need suddenly a lot of money, so uh, a wealth tax. Or, and this is where Athens actually was a leader, it's one of the distinctive features of their democracy, 
in order to uh, perform in the way they wanted a whole range of religious festivals, and that includes the theatrical festivals in honour of Dionysus, but it might be a festival in honour of the patron god Athena. You have to have animals to sacrifice. Animals have to be reared, um, oxen, sheep, whatever, cows, and somebody's got to pay for that. Well, typically the rich supplied, they were required to supply the apparatus whereby the gods were worshipped in the theatre, Uh, in the slaughter of animals as an offering of sacrifice to the god or goddess in question. So that's um, a form of um, taxation. What they didn't have was income tax. What they did have also, this is a much lower level, was a sales tax. So when you uh, exchange something in the marketplace of Athens or in the harbour, the state rakes off its 1%, 2% for public funds to build ships, to pay councillors, etc., etc., for all the pay the um, policemen even. Well, now, Athens is unusual. By and large, one can say there were hardly anything that you or I would call a regular police force, not only in ancient Greece, but neither in ancient Rome. So... Citizens were supposed to act as vigilantes, in other words, as sort of self-policing. But Athens, partly because it was rich, it did make an exception. And it had a police force of perhaps about 100 publicly owned, that is collectively owned slaves from one particular ethnic group. And there's an obvious advantage in having all of them able to communicate with each other. And they came from what the Greeks called Scythia, which is roughly the area north of the Black Sea, extending as far east as the Caspian. So round about um, those parts of Central Asia and Armenia and other Scythians wander around. And they're famous for being archers. So the Scythian archers served as a very rudimentary um, crowd control, if you like, type of police at Athens. Staying with the the subject of slaves there, um, what percentage of the population were slaves? Right, well again you have to distinguish between all the different cities and um, fact is there were no censuses until very exceptionally right down the end of the 4th century BC there was one at Athens for example and the ancient Greeks, though they were mathematically very smart, they weren't very good at big numbers and for example for them, the same word that meant 10,000 for them meant countless, so sort of millions. Well, 10,000 isn't by our standards that much, but it's what Aristotle, for example, thought was the maximum number, the ideal maximum number for a citizen body. Well, most Greek cities actually were smaller than that um, in terms of citizens. Athens was quite exceptional. It had maybe 50,000 at one point, adult males, and at 
normal number was something of the order of 25, 30,000. Well, against them, obviously, you've got um, their wives and their children. So you've got to multiply that figure of 30, 40,000 by about four, add in resident aliens, and then add in slaves. And so you get to a figure for Athens, round about um, 400 BC, let's say, round figures, something of the order of a quarter of a million, 250,000. Well, modern scholars, we, we differ about everything, of course, but there is a sort of a maximalist and a minimalist um, take. I'm somewhere in the middle. I think about eighty to 100,000 of those were slaves. So about a third, 30% of the entirety of the population would have been unfree slaves owned either collectively or individually all or almost all of them in Athens being non-Greeks by ethnicity. And who owned slaves? What? How much would a slave cost? Right. Again, we, there are no censuses. There are no, as it were, statistics. And so we have the odd um, document which gives you slave prices. And you can sometimes there are enough of them you can average them out. And one of these from the late fifth century suggests that um, an average price might be, um, now I'm going to have to do a translation, but um, in ancient Greek terms, 150 or so drachmas. Well, now a drachma still uh, was a modern Greek term, of course, until the euro uh, superseded it. But a drachma means um, a handful, literally, uh, of spits, of iron cooking uh, spits. And so Six of those, six obols, made a drachma. And a drachma was what a skilled worker would be paid on a daily basis at the end of the 5th century BC. So if you can imagine 150 times what a skilled worker would expect to get, that is what the cost of a slave was. On the one hand, not vast, you know, not huge. On the other hand, not minimal. And so it's thought that probably a maximum of 30%, maybe 50% absolute maximum owned one slave or more. On the other hand, right at the top, the people who are really paying the super tax, as it were, uh, they, the, what, 5%, some of them owned as many as 1,000 slaves. So 1,000 times 150 drachmas, you're into the millions of drachs. Huge. Um, but this is like the modern world. It's like we say the 1% has hugely disproportionate amount of wealth. Same in Athens. The difference was that the Athenians made the rich cough up. So um, slaves were quite expensive. They weren't very expensive. And what was life like um, for a slave? How, how were they treated? Right, there was a huge spectrum. Suppose you were a public slave and you were owned by the city of Athens, the people, and your role was to keep the records of the assembly or of a law court. You were literate, you were um, probably quite well dressed, you wouldn't be beaten, ordered around, you were an important public functionary, 
Life wasn't too bad. Go to the other end of the spectrum. <clears throat> You're a young boy, a teenager. You've just been bought in um, Bulgaria or Scythia or what's now Turkey. You're transported to Athens and you find yourself a slave of a mine operator, somebody who wants to make his money by putting you down a mine to extract silver. Life for them was both miserable in itself, nasty, brutish, and probably quite short. And <clears throat> this is where the, if you like, the dark underside of the Athenians' achievement lies. In order for them to be as wealthy, as successful, to build all those ships, to pay the citizens, to go to the theatre, wow, they needed slave labour to extract the silver which produced the bullion from which the coin was, and so on. So the underside, the underbelly of Athenian cultural achievement is slavery in the mines. That was the worst kind. Now, in between... You might be, whether a male or a female, a household slave. And as such, you might be the pedagogue, if you're male, that is the tutor of the master or mistress's young son. Well, that's not too bad. You might be the female attendant of the mistress, looking after her cosmetics and her clothing and all that. Well, of course, some mistresses would be absolutely horrible and, and treat the slave appallingly, but but that in itself wouldn't be such a terrible type of life as that of a mine slave in the mines. On the other hand, big difference between Greece and Rome here. You'd typically both come into Athens or wherever, Corinth, as a slave, and you'd die as a slave. The Greeks were not so keen on manumitting, on freeing their slaves as the Romans were. And as I say, if they did choose, let's say the slave gets very old, has an accident, and they wish to free them or they wish to sell them on to someone else, then that slave doesn't cease to be a slave or doesn't become a citizen but becomes a resident alien. And I suppose if they had any natal ties, they might still want to go back to their original homeland, but that we don't really know much about. And one very popular search question is, where were slaves uh, allowed? Where did they sleep? Were they allowed to have families or did they all live with their masters? Very much. Well, they all lived with their masters except those very skilled craftsmen slaves, and they were typically male, who lived apart. That is, they were established by the master in a workshop. And, for example, the politician Demosthenes, his father had two lots of slaves like that. One lot made couches and the other lot made knives and they lived apart and so to some extent determined their own uh, lifestyle, their own rate of work and all that. Of course, subject to producing the goods that Demosthenes' dad required. But most slaves, if they were in agriculture, they lived on the farm and most Greeks um, lived actually in the country, not in urban uh, environments. If, on the other hand, they were urban slaves, and then they lived on the ground floor or at the back. You've got to imagine something like um, in the old south of America. And they certainly were not allowed to marry. And normally they were not allowed to have sex, except 
forced to by the master or mistress. I mean, it's not a great scenario, but the Greeks did not typically want their slaves to breed. They didn't want them to have children because it was cheaper to buy a new slave on the market than it was to rear the slave. The mother, after all, if she was a female slave, might die in childbirth. The male slave, as a young boy, might get sick, and that would be time off work. It's not efficient. So, whereas the Romans seem to have gone in for breeding, as the old South in America did, they had to because they couldn't import slaves after 1807, the Greeks relied on imports. Now, Sparta is in many ways a peculiar society. Uh, It's rather remote in the sense it's way down south. It's not a commercial um, town. It does have craftsmen, but it's basically agricultural. And it is a conquest state. So the Spartans expanded from Sparta out over the whole of the southern Peloponnese. So they had a mini empire. Their city's territory was the largest in the entire Greek world by a factor of over three. I mean, it was really hugely bigger than anywhere else. So how do they work? How was the basically agricultural produce produced and by whom? It was done by a whole population. These are Greeks. They're not bought on the market from abroad. They're not foreigners. They're locals whom at one point the Spartans had enslaved and called, and it's a very unpleasant term, helots. And the Greek word high low tie means a captive. So their very name, their collective name, bears witness to how their ancestors had originally been enslaved. Thereafter, now this is unlike slavery in Athens and elsewhere, reproduction, breeding, was the only way in which the Spartans uh, reproduced their slave community. So helots had families, and the sources actually talk of wives. So they're Greeks, remember, they're worshipping the same gods, they have the same ethnicity, they share the same language, but what they lack is freedom. Secondly, they're not owned individually, they're owned by the city or the community of Sparta collectively, and the terms on which they do their, mainly agricultural, they did some other um, tasks, for example, in town, they would be household servants, or they might be um, drivers of mules or something like that, but most of them, the overwhelming majority, were farmers producing grain, wine and olive oil down in the two very big riverine valleys in the Peloponnese. The other thing that's distinctive about them, and it's really quite horrible, and it seems to be the case, every year the chief officials of the Spartan state uttered a declaration. And the declaration was in two parts. First to the Spartans, shave your moustaches, and obey the laws. And it's very interesting, there are sculptures which show, I mean, they're presumably meant to be Spartans in bronze or in stone without a moustache. So they grew a full beard, but no moustache. Shave your moustache, obey the laws. Second half of the proclamation was to declare the helots enemies of state. So that 
And this is really partly not so much a pragmatic thing, but it's a um, religious thing. If you kill another human being in everyday um, converse and uh, everyday transactions, you commit homicide. Well, that in Greek eyes incurred pollution. It meant you were polluted in some way. You needed to be purified of that blood guilt. If, on the other hand, and this is similar to us, I'm afraid, if you kill an enemy in war, say I go over and we're in Afghanistan and I kill a Taliban, that's not murder. That's homicide, but it's not murder. In the same way, if a Spartan killed a helot, because of this decree, this declaration, he was not committing murder. He was committing homicide. And so he was absolved in advance from pollution, encouraging him, therefore, not to hold back in killing a helot if that was thought to be necessary or desirable. So the helots are at the same time the workforce of the entire Spartan state, but they're also slaves under constant threat of death. That was Professor Paul Cartledge. As I mentioned before, we'll return to this topic in next Sunday's episode. And that's about it for today. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when we'll be discussing one of history's greatest mysteries. (laughs)